Forgiveness. This is one of those difficult topics. Actually, um, a lot of these topics we're going to talk about this semester are difficult. And uh, yet, they still have to be talked about. I've always loved this quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, everyone says forgiveness is a lovely idea until they have something to forgive. It's great, but it's hard to do. It's hard to do, but we all long for it, don't we? And we want a world where forgiveness flows. There's this, uh, this old story, took place in Spain. Father and son had become estranged. The son ran away from home. The father set off to find him to no avail. Finally, in a last desperate attempt to reach out to his son, he took out an ad in the Madrid newspaper. And the ad simply said this, Dear Paco, meet me in front of this newspaper office at noon on Saturday. All is forgiven. I love you. What do you think happened on Saturday? 800 Pacos showed up. We all want it. We all need it. But how do we get it? In this text, Jesus teaches us about what forgiveness is, where it comes from, and how we can grow in forgiveness. This passage doesn't talk about every nuance, so I'll import some things from some other places. But let's look at this text as our starting point. Luke chapter 17, verse 3. And you may think I'm reading farther than we need to for the topic of forgiveness. But I hope as you go through this, you'll see why these, what might seem to be separate ideas, actually all go together. Luke 17, Jesus says this. So watch yourselves. If your brother or sister sins against you, rebuke them. And if they repent... Forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. The apostle said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. Suppose one of you has a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Will he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Won't he rather say, prepare my supper, get yourself ready and wait on me while I eat and drink. After that, you may eat and drink. Will he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, We are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. Now, on his way to Jerusalem, Jesus traveled along the border between Samaria and Galilee. And as he was going into a village, ten men who had leprosy met him. They stood at a distance and called out in a loud voice, Jesus, Master, have pity on us. When he saw them, he said, Go, show yourselves to the priests. And as they went, they were cleansed. In the Jewish law, if you were cleansed of leprosy, you needed to show yourself to the priests, right? One of them, one of the lepers, when he saw he was healed, 
came back, praising God in a loud voice. He threw himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. And he, this one, was a Samaritan. Jesus asked, were not all ten cleansed? Where are the other nine? Has no one returned to give praise to God except this foreigner? Then he said to him, rise and go, your faith has made you well. Now this isn't actually central to what I'm going to talk about tonight, but it is worth pointing out. Sometimes people say, you know, Jesus never claimed to be God. You ever heard that? Well, he just did in this passage. Actually, in the Greek, it says that uh, it uses the word for prostrate. When it says he fell down, it's one of the key New Testament Greek words for worship. What this guy does when he gets healed is he falls down and he worships Jesus. And notice what Jesus says. Where are the other nine? Jesus does not say, get up, you blasphemer. Do not worship me, a mere man, a mere teacher. Instead, he says, where are the other nine? Don't ever let anybody tell you that Jesus didn't claim to be God. He received worship and said the ones who weren't worshiping him were wrong to not worship him. Right? Well, let's pray, and then we're going to dig into this passage on forgiveness. So let's pray. Lord, we do thank you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for this teaching, but even as we hear it again afresh tonight, we, like the disciples, say, Lord, increase our faith. Some hard stuff in this teaching. But I pray, Lord, that as we consider this, that it wouldn't just be something that we grudgingly accept, but it'd be something that we would embrace and long for, something that we long to grow in ourselves so that we could see the kingdom of God continue to spread until one day there will be no more need for forgiveness because there will be no more sin and no more brokenness. And Lord, help us to long for that day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, let me just say a couple things. You know, this is one of those topics where as soon as you start to say something, you wish you could say everything all at once, right? So, maybe before I talk about what forgiveness is, let me just give a few disclaimers what forgiveness is not. And I, I'm drawing this from a great book by um, a friend. I, she's a friend of mine, too, but she's really a better friend of my wife's, uh, a lady named Ruth Ann Batstone. She, for many, many years, has been a counselor that works with Surge. Um, has her PhD in small group dynamics and worked with Wendy in this ministry called Pericaleo. And she has this wonderful book that, that I wish I'd had more time to read. And I wish we were doing a small group actually through this book because it's awesome. Um, the book is called Moving On. And it, it's a great book. The whole book is on forgiveness. Highly recommend it. But here's from her chapter on what forgiveness is not. So a few little disclaimers before we get into what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is not the same as denial. Forgiveness is not the same as denial. Forgiveness is not trying to feel good about something wrong or evil. Forgiveness is not the same as forgetting. As a matter of fact, that's one of the great lies that a lot of Christians believe, that forgiveness and forgetting are the same thing. Forgiveness is not a one-time event. Forgiveness is not contingent on another one's repentance. It is about my heart 
before God. But as soon as you say that, you have to also hear this. Forgiveness is not the same as restored trust and relationship. Forgiveness is not the same as reconciliation. So it doesn't depend on the other's repentance. And you might be like, wait, but verse 3. We're going to get into this. It's actually important that we look carefully at verse 3 and verse 4 and how they fit together. So let's start. What does Jesus teach us about what forgiveness actually is? Well, the first is, verse 3, he says, rebuke this person. And you might think, what? That's strange. But here's, here's what you need to understand. Forgiveness has a bigger goal than just restoration of a relationship between two people. The real goal of forgiveness is to stop the spread of sin in this world. See, Jesus links forgiving and rebuking. What is rebuking? Here's what rebuking really is. It's coming against sin in the name of God. So in verse 3, you see Jesus saying rebuke and forgive. Linking them means that Jesus is after restored relationships where sin no longer reigns and creates barriers. So this is how we know that forgiveness is not just forgetting and ignoring the sin issue. He wants the sin to stop spreading. You want to come against sin in the name of God. Rebuking, dealing with sin, is not separate from forgiveness. But here's the thing. To really rebuke someone with the goal of healing and restoration, rather than just wanting to get it off your chest, requires that you've already forgiven the person in your heart. You see, you actually have to have forgiven to be able to rebuke in a productive, healing sort of way. You need to ask yourself this. Do I want this person to flourish? Because when you rebuke someone, it's with the goal that sin would stop spreading and that that other person would flourish. To do that means you have to have went through the process of forgiveness. It's subtle, but it's important that you see that Jesus is not saying forgiveness is just pretend it never happened. It did happen, and it's serious, and it needs to stop. And the goal of forgiveness is to stop the spread of sin. It's an action. It's not just a feeling. Do you want this person to flourish? That's a good question. Do I want the kingdom to expand, or am I content with just becoming more comfortable? Those are absolutely important, vital, diagnostic questions before you would attempt to rebuke. I've heard it put this way, that, you know, there are what we call peace fakers, peace breakers, and peacemakers. It's actually a great uh, book and seminar by a guy named Ken Sandy uh, called The Peacemaker, and uh, there's a whole ministry dedicated to this, because it's a huge problem, right, in Christian churches and elsewhere, right? But here's the thing, if you're someone who really actually enjoys rebuking sin, and yet it never leads people to be softened, you probably are a peace breaker. 
this is me. This is me. I'm, I'm more the peace breaker. I don't like Southern people that just pretend everything's like, is all right. Drives me crazy, okay? But that doesn't mean that I always want people to be softened. Sometimes I just want to tell them off, right? If you're someone who rebukes sin, but it never leads people to being softened, people sense that often your rebuke is designed to punish, not to heal. Actually, years and years ago, like 20 years ago, when I was first in ministry, I, I met the mom of one of my students who literally would write like five to ten letters a week to people she didn't know, rebuking them for their sin. She felt that that was her ministry calling. I'm sure she has a discernment blog now, you know, and she's probably on Twitter. Um, but, but I just was like astonished. But this, she literally thought this was her ministry, right? Most of you are probably not like that, because I know you. You're all nice people. You're not like me. Um, so, you, so maybe the second thing is what you need to hear. If you're one who wants to, quote-unquote, forgive, and by that I mean ignore the issue without rebuking, then you're probably a peace faker. If you're one who never confronts, your real goal is not love, but your own selfish peace. Hear that. I say it in love. But what, you know, what actually John's Gospel at the very beginning says, Jesus came from the Father full of grace and truth. And we always want Jesus to be one or the other of those things, often depending on our temperament. Some people want Jesus to be all about truth because they love to tell people off and have Jesus on their side. And other people are like, they don't ever want to confront anybody, they just want Jesus to forgive everybody. So it's all about grace. But Jesus came full of grace and truth. And our goal must always be in loving people to give them a taste of the strength and mercy of God. Not one or the other. It's important that we don't misrepresent who God actually is and what he's actually like. Neither peace-breaking or peace-faking works. The goal in true forgiveness is to stop the spread of evil, not to just tell people off or to end the tension. And that's why Jesus in the Lord's Prayer links the prayer for God's kingdom to come with practicing forgiveness as forgiven people. Because forgiveness is the fuel of the kingdom, right? So that's verse 3. Forgiveness has a goal, which involves rebuking, stopping the spread of, of sin. But verse 4, look at this. True forgiveness is an action, not just a feeling, and it's not based on the other person's sincerity. And that's the only way to understand verse 4, because how could the person be sincere if they come back seven times in one day, right? So what Jesus is pushing the point there to get us to understand that forgiveness is not just a feeling, because how could you feel warm and cozy to this person seven times in one day? It doesn't work that way, unless you just have the ability to completely disconnect from reality and your feelings. And some people can do that. It's not good, by the way. Um, but, but it can't be, forgiveness can't be warm, fuzzy feelings towards this person, okay? And it also can't be based on the person's sincerity, because verse 4 is clear that this is something that's ridiculous, that somebody's taking advantage of, yet you still have to forgive them. So here's what we learn from verse 4. It can't be a feeling. It can't be based on the other person's sincerity or performance because if they sin against you seven times in one day, they obviously aren't sincere in their repentance. 
So now you may say, well, what do you mean forgiveness isn't dependent on the other person's performance? Because verse 3 says, if he repents, forgive him. But then in verse 4, it says, even if he repents seven times, you still have to forgive him. So here's an important distinction, right? We need to make this distinction between forgiveness extended as an action and restored trust. Forgiveness extended does not automatically lead to restored trust because, take note of this, the goal of God's kingdom is to stop the spread of sin. And restored relationship done unwisely may actually enable more sin to happen. This is why you can't equate forgiveness with restored trust. Restored trust has to be earned and you have to be wise. And while you are called and you have to forgive, even if the person is not sincere, you do not trust them without testing their sincerity. Because to do that is not to come against the spread of sin. You don't have the right to let other people sin against you. It's not loving. It's not selfish either. To always be trying to stop the spread of sin. Dan Allender, great Christian counselor, has a wonderful book called Bold Love that talks about this and how you actually need different strategies to love someone who's just kind of a normal sinner, somebody who's a fool, who's arrogant and a rageaholic, and somebody who's a truly evil person. And I hope you never meet somebody who's truly evil, right? Sometimes we throw that around very easily. I have known... At least one person I would definitely put in that category, a father of a girl I had about 20 years ago. The most horrific stories ever. And I remember sitting down with the daughter and her dad and her mom to try to have a reconciliation meeting. And the guy was just unbelievable, right? And I pray that you don't know those kind of people. But if you interact with an evil person, like they're just a normal garden variety sinner, it will tear you apart. So, come talk to me. Come talk to Wendy if you're trying to think about, okay, well, here's my situation. How does this, how do we put this into practice? But it's vital that you make this distinction between forgiveness and restored trust. They're not the same thing. They're not to be equated, right? We read in Mark eleven twenty five 25 that we're to forgive, period. Mark 11 says this, when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. But here's how to understand that in conjunction with Luke 17. This is the forgiveness in your heart that's presupposed by the directions in Luke 17 regarding reconciliation and restored trust. Remember, because verse 3 starts with rebuke them, what we're talking about in verse 4 are practical guide, practical guidance, practical steps for attempting to restore a relationship. Okay? All right. In other words, to be able to do Luke 17, 3, you must have already forgiven in your heart in a way that's not based on their performance. All right? And here's another thing about forgiveness. 
Asking for forgiveness should involve confessing specifics. An apology is not the same thing as asking for forgiveness. I was telling you about that, that meeting we had. Her parents were generally concerned about her um, because she'd actually started living with a drug dealer. That was not a good situation. I'm not sure it was worse than living with her parents, honestly. But as we sat down, we had to meet at kind of a neutral place. We met out like a McDonald's out in Bellevue. And I remember we're sitting there, and at one point, her dad said, you know, to this girl, well, I'm sorry you feel that way. And then kind of the conversation went on, 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 on. And, and later she said something. It was like, well, I already, asked, you know, I already told you I was sorry. I said, with all due respect, sir, you said you were sorry about what she felt. You never, for, you never apologized. And he slammed his hands on the table. I thought he was going to hit me. And honestly, I would have liked it if he would have hit me because <laughs> I would have wanted to hit him back, right? Like sometimes I think, you know, when somebody tells me a story like that, part of my role is to reflect what God thinks about it. It's okay to get angry like God gets angry when you hear those kind of stories. It's okay for that guy to know that it's not okay, right? That he can't just utter some words and everything's fine, especially when he doesn't own up to what actually happened, right? Here's what true forgiveness is. True forgiveness involves the acceptance of a debt. The Greek word actually isn't always translated forgive, often it's translated let it be, or it has the connotation of consent. So, so here's what it means. It means to basically accept the debt and say it's, it's okay, it's covered. Now, how do you do that? Well, to, to pay a debt, the first thing you have to do is assess how much you've been robbed. This is very important because I think a lot of Christian teachings on forgiveness miss this. You can't really forgive someone if you pretend that it was no big deal. And sometimes for Christians, this is one of the hardest things to do because they feel like we're, we're supposed to forgive. It's like, yeah, but you haven't really forgiven. You just put a little Band-Aid on it because you've never actually taken stock of the harm that was inflicted and the debt that needs to be paid, right? Forgiveness does not equal forgetting or pretending it didn't happen. Now, people get tripped up here because I think a lot of it's from Jeremiah 31, 34. In Jeremiah 31, 34, God promises to forgive our sins and to remember them no more. Maybe you've heard that, that verse. And a lot of Christians say, well, if we're to forgive like God forgives, that means we're to remember them no more. That is not what Jeremiah 31, 34 is talking about. God does not suddenly get amnesia. God remembers everything. Everything. Jesus, in the book of Revelation, appears as the lamb who was slain. His story involves scars that are there even in glorified state. Even in the glorified state, he still has wounds when he appears to the disciples. He invites Thomas to put his hand in his wounds. So, do not think that forgiveness means no more wounds, no more brokenness, no more evidence. Everything is just forgotten. That's not true. That's not true for Jesus, and it's not what he calls us to do. 
So God is not saying in Jeremiah 31, 34 that he'll suddenly develop amnesia. Rather, he's saying, I promise to not deal with us as our sins deserve. Dan Allender, whose specialty is working with victims of sexual abuse, puts it this way. I do not believe forgiveness involves forgetting the past and ignoring the damage of past or present harm. To do so, even if it were possible, would be tantamount to erasing one's personal history and the work of God in the midst of our journey. The only way for the forgive and forget mentality to be practiced is through radical denial, deception, or pretense. So we must assess the debt, take account of it, but then for forgiveness to happen, someone has to pay. To forgive, you must assume the debt rather than making someone else pay. That's the heart of forgiveness, saying, I will no longer make this person pay. Well, how do we make other people pay? Lots of different ways. Sometimes we're cold with them. We try to shame them sometimes. We're demanding, slander them to others, sometimes under the guise of, would you pray with me about this person so that I can share all the stuff they did to me? Um, maybe you want to warn somebody about this person, right? Sometimes we actively seek to hurt them or just secretly root for their failure in our hearts. These are all ways of trying to make people pay. Dan Allender again says that forgiveness involves canceling the debt that is owed in order to give that person a taste of the glory of God. But that doesn't mean that they'll receive it. But you have to do it. Now, making payments on debts that are owed is costly. It's not easy at all, but it's what Jesus calls us to do. It doesn't mean letting them continue to sin against you, right? Because you want their good. Paying yourself means wanting and longing for their good. And sometimes that means standing up to them and not letting them continue to sin against you, right? To forgive, this is the way Allender puts it, and this is, comes from Romans 12. To forgive, we must revoke our right to revenge without losing our hunger for it. Listen to this passage. This is Romans 12, 17 through 21. Repay no one evil for good, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. I love that, if possible, because sometimes it's not possible, guys. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For by so doing, you will heat burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Now, Dan Allender talks about this, and he says, listen, this is the trick. To hold on to your longing for all things to be made right, to not ever lose that longing, but not take it in your own hands, because vengeance is mine. 
And Allender actually says this, look, the reason you want to leave it to God is we're not very good at enacting vengeance. It actually hurts us. God who is holy can bring righteous judgment against evil without it corrupting him in a way that you can't. So you are to long for and to cry out for righteousness and for all things to be made right and not to be swept under the rug, but you don't take matters into your own hands because frankly you're not very good at it. And usually you make it worse and you make it worse on yourself. Annie Dillard has this great line, she says, Living with unforgiveness is like drinking rat poison, hoping the rat dies. Living with unforgiveness is like drinking rat poison, hoping the rat will die. But that doesn't mean you pretend everything's fine. Vengeance is mine, the Lord says. There is not one sin that will go unpunished. Either on the person of Jesus or on the person who committed it. Because all things will be made right. There will be no loose ends. And you have to know that if you're going to extend forgiveness in the here and now. Are we willing to trust God to make all things right? So this forgiveness stuff is hard, isn't it? It's no wonder the disciples are like, Lord, increase our faith. Is that where you're at? That's where I'm at, right? And so that's what he does. This is interesting. Don't pull this out of context. They said, increase our faith. That's what, how they respond when they hear what he's saying. And then he tells them, if your faith is small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. In Jesus' day, they thought that mulberry trees would be planted and then would last and stay in their place for 600 years. So he's not saying that your faith is like this power that you have that can work miracles if you just work it the right way. What he's saying is, do you trust? What is faith? Faith is not some power, cosmic power, like the health and wealth teachers say, that you can kind of unlock the spiritual laws of the universe and speak words that will control reality the way God does. That's not faith. Faith is trust in God, our warrior, who will make all things right. And God, who has made us fabulously wealthy so that we can actually pay and not make others have to pay. Jesus says if you have true faith, it does have power. But it's not because your faith is powerful. You don't need a lot of faith. What matters is the object of your faith not the strength of your faith. Mustard seed is tiny little seed. Tiny, tiny, tiny. Faith is a whole-souled reliance on Jesus who lived and died in our place and living life in implications of that truth. So, where does it go next? Well, Jesus actually does help increase their faith. That's where the story goes next. He doesn't just say, well, if you had faith, you could you know, tell this, you know, this tree to be, you know, uproot itself and throw into the sea. He doesn't just end there. He goes on 
And he teaches them how to increase their faith and how to grow in forgiveness. And here's what he says. He says the first thing is humility. True forgiveness only comes from humility. Here's the thing. You can never forgive someone if you feel superior to them. You can only pity them. You can't forgive them. Jesus says we're to think of ourselves as servants who deserve nothing. It's a strong parable. It's a hard parable. Because we're like, what? That seems, like, that seems so unfair. But what Jesus is saying, look, even if you've done everything right, which, by the way, you haven't, but even if you had, that doesn't give you any kind of power over God or leverage over God. Everything you receive is because of mercy and condescension. So humble yourselves. In other words, when we refuse to forgive, though we are mere servants, we're acting like kings and judges rather than trusting God who is the judge. And we separate ourselves from these other people. and We look down on them. Humility is the only thing that helps real forgiveness happen. Miroslav Volf, great uh, theologian, I forget if he's Serbian or Croatian, but regardless, he lived through genocide and now teaches at Princeton Seminary. He has a wonderful book about forgiveness, and this line from there has always been so helpful. He says, forgiveness flounders because I exclude the enemy from the community of humans, even as I exclude myself from the community of sinners. So for forgiveness to happen, you have to remember this person is part of the community of humans and you're part of the community of sinners. Humility is absolutely key. There's a great old, older story. Now Mike Wallace actually just passed away, didn't he? 60 Minutes guy, you guys ever watch 60 Minutes? You know, it's like this TV news show on Sunday nights, right? Been around forever and ever. Well, th- one of the most unbelievable um, episodes actually happened in the, in the 70s, the early 70s. It's about Ad- Adolf Eichmann, right? Who's one of the guys who kind of put together the whole Holocaust situation. And then there's this Jewish guy, um, Yehiel Denur. Denur was his last name, right? Denur had been in prison at Auschwitz, was asked to testify against Eichmann at the Nuremberg trials. Maybe you've studied enough history to know, right? The Nuremberg trials happened after the end of World War II. Um, And so on 60 Minutes, Mike Wallace is interviewing Denur, the guy who'd been imprisoned at Auschwitz. And at the Nuremberg trials, they had Denur testify as one of the witnesses against Eichmann, the architect of the Holocaust. Mike Wallace showed a film clip of Denur the moment that Eichmann walked into the courtroom. Denur is sitting, Eichmann walks in, comes face to face, Eichmann and Denur come face to face, and as he walks past him, as Eichmann walks past Denur, Denur loses it, begins to sob uncontrollably, and actually literally collapses and falls to the floor. And so Mike Wallace plays this video clip Talk about, you know, catching this guy off guard. Plays this video for him and asks him this. Why did you react that way? Was it the overwhelming anger at this monster who'd killed so many of your friends and family? 
And what Denur said was unbelievable. What he said is no. What made me weep was that when I looked at him, he was an old man just like me. He was not an inhuman monster. He was an old, frail man like me. And I was afraid for myself. I saw that I too am capable of what this man did. I am no different than Eichmann. And I couldn't handle it. And he collapsed to the ground. Right? Forgiveness can only happen when you see yourself as a servant of God. And that's why Jesus teaches here about being cleansed and being thankful. You can't forgive unless you see yourself as rich. If you only see yourself as an unclean leper, you'll never be able to forgive. And you know this is true. You know how you know this is true? Because there are things that you find it easy to forgive, and there are things that you find it almost impossible to forgive. And you know what the difference is? Your own insecurity. At the places where you feel naked and ashamed, those places are the places where you find it so difficult to forgive because you don't feel you can afford to pay. And the places where you feel secure and like you have a lot of resources, you find those things easy to forgive. What does that mean? It means that the key to forgiveness is to see yourself as fabulously wealthy. You have to see yourself as rich to be able to forgive people who've hurt you where you're most insecure. One of the ways to do that is to practice thankfulness as a regular spiritual discipline, whether you feel you need it or not. But Tim Keller said it actually builds up heart capital. It's one of the reasons we sing the songs that we sing. We don't just sing songs telling God how we feel. We sing songs celebrating what he's done because that's what we need to go deeper and deeper into our heart. Not so much that we just know it, but we can taste it. Because if you don't taste that you've been forgiven from death and hell, you won't be able to forgive the way God calls you to forgive. Where are you insecure? Ponder, where is it that you find it so difficult to forgive? You need to see that Jesus has made you wealthy beyond what you believe in those places. And he did it by taking our shame and our sin giving us his wealth and his beauty. Forgiveness is costly. A couple closing applications. It's costly, but it brings healing. You may think that to forgive means the other person wins. That is a lie from the pit of hell. When forgiveness happens, God wins. The kingdom of God wins. Forgiving others is also the door into understanding the Lord's forgiveness. Here's the way it works. When you try to forgive and you can't do it, then what do you do? Well, then you go to God and you ask forgiveness for not being able to forgive. And then you have to appropriate the forgiveness that he extends. And it builds into your life this currency of forgiveness that is the way the kingdom of God grows. This quote I've always loved from Frederick Buechner. 
from his book, The Magnificent Defeat. And we'll close with this. He says, the love for equals is a human thing, a friend for friend, brother for brother. It is to love what is loving and lovely, and the world smiles. The love for the less fortunate is a beautiful thing. The love for those who suffer, for those who are poor, the sick, the failures, the unlovely. This is compassion, and it touches the heart of the world. The love for the more fortunate is a rare thing. To love those who succeed where we fail, to rejoice without envy with those who rejoice. The love of the poor for the rich, of the black man for the white man. The world is always bewildered by its saints. And then there is the love for the enemy. Love for the one who does not love you but mocks, threatens, and inflicts pain. The tortured's love for the torturer. This is God's love. It conquers the world. Let's pray together.